Years ago, the Lord of the Rings took the world by storm. First with the books, and then with the movies that came out. The central plot of the Lord of the Rings is the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power. There are many, many ways to describe that kind of relationship to an idol, but perhaps the best one is of worship. You see, worship is the ascribing of worth to something as ultimate in value in any area of life. We all worship something all the time. We all try to find our significance and joy in some ultimate thing. And so worship matters. It matters to God because he's the only one ultimately worthy of all of our worship. It matters to us because worshiping God is the very reason each and every one of us was created. So how is your worship today? Is it centered on God or on something else? Who or what is getting your ultimate allegiance today? Well, this is the question that we're confronted with as the book of Joshua comes to a close this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the sixth book of the Old Testament, to the book of Joshua. And we'll be looking at chapters 22 on through chapter 24, the close of the book. These chapters are composed of three different speeches, kind of Joseph's farewell to the people of Israel before he passes away. And in chapter 22, we see that Joshua is speaking to the eastern tribes, thanking them for their faithfulness in fighting and sends them back to the land east of the Jordan. In chapter 23, Joshua speaks to the nation's leaders as he passes the torch to the next generation of leaders. In Joshua's last speech in chapter 24, he speaks to the entire nation of Israel at a place called Shechem. Each of these three chapters describes a separate event, but it becomes apparent on a a reading of these chapters that they all focus on a single matter. The proper worship of Israel's God. And we'll see three things about the nature of true worship in these three chapters, and they'll form the outline that we'll go through this morning. The first is that worship is undivided. Worship is to be undivided. Second, worship is historical. Worship is historical. And third, worship is pure. Worship is undivided. Worship is historical. And then thirdly, worship is pure. Those are our three points as we head on in this large chunk of Scripture today. So let's look at the first point. First, the worship is to be undivided. And we see this in chapter 22 of Joshua. The Israelites have just finished fighting the Canaanites after seven long years of battle. They're finally enjoying peace in the land. And so the question exists is, will their worship be undivided in this time of peace? Will they be faithful to God after the fighting has ended? Or would Israel abandon this high-level spiritual commitment and integrity and gradually, maybe even slowly but surely, fall into disobedience and pagan paganism, pagan worship of false gods? Well, it's important to understand the context of chapter 22. See, in, in this chapter, we see that nine and a half tribes of Israel were starting to settle in to the promised land west of the Jordan River. But the other two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, had already claimed land east 
of the Jordan before they ever started fighting. They had seen that the land was good for their cattle, and so they asked to settle there. This wasn't God's best, but their request was granted. So now that the war was largely over, Joshua released those two and a half tribes to go back over the Jordan, east of the Jordan, to go settle their land. So finally they split up and left. When suddenly, now almost immediately, something unexpected and terrible was happening. This word got back to the western tribes, west of the Jordan. Look down at chapter 22, verse 10. Scroll down to verse 10. When they came to Gelioth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. Now, what's the big deal about an altar? Well, it's a huge deal. See, altars tend to symbolize a break with worship of the true God. It meant apostasy. It meant worshiping another god other than the true God, which Deuteronomy had strongly spoken against, that there is to be one altar, one faith, one God. Worship was to be undivided. So this is serious. In fact, it's so serious. Look at the response from the Western tribes in verses 11 and 12. They hear of this altar that the Eastern tribes have set up, and they say in verse 11, When the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gelioth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. The response is to fight. Now we need to remember that these men on the west and these men on the east, they had been fighting together on the same side for the past seven years against the Canaanites. I mean, a special bond would have been developed. I mean, so many of us have seen some of these war movies, The Band of Brothers or other, other films that show this camaraderie that comes in fighting together. They would have had this, and so it would have been quite an emotional parting of ways after those seven years. Here we have a brother who saved another's life as they pursued the soldiers against the southern coalition in Gibeon. Or here's another one who helped storm the fortified walls at Hebron. These would have been men who would have marched together around the city of Jericho. I mean, think of it. These men loved one another, and after seven years, they're pretty sick of war. They're pretty sick of fighting. They're finally getting to settle in the land that God had promised all those years prior to Abraham. This was big. Finally enjoying this great provision from God. And the western tribes have barely begun to unpack their bags when they hear of this altar that was set up east of the Jordan. And yet without flinching, they get their armor back on and they prepare to go to civil war. Now they weren't angry or resentful of their brothers. They loved their brothers. But here's the important thing. They loved their brothers, but they were more zealous for God. The holiness of God demands that there be no compromise in the area of truth, that worship was to be undivided, that it is God and nothing else. And so they send a delegation of ten leaders and Phineas a priest to go confront the eastern tribes of their expression of infidelity. They equated it with Achan's sin. 
and fear that a similar judgment may come down on both the eastern and western tribes. And so the western tribes immediately head out to confront them on their possible sin. I think there's a great lesson. There's several great lessons actually in these three chapters. But I think there's a great lesson here for us as a church. You know, if you're a member of this church, if you have submitted and abided by this covenant that we have promised to keep, then you would have noticed in past readings of it when it says this. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. See, the church... Our church needs to have such an infatuation with the true worship of God, such an anxiety when the covenant people appear to wander from the path that we hold our members under vigilant accountability and discipline. I mean, undivided worship of a holy God of the universe should constantly be on our minds. If we see a brother or sister in sin Because we love God and because we love that person, we need, we must, we should do something. Because God's reputation and his glory is at stake. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become the sin police. You know, always on the prowl, looking under every corner, every crevice, trying to find sin. Trying to discover a sinner as if we could become a sin detector in the same way that a metal detector detects metal. You know, that that wouldn't be love. But... When we observe or witness or hear that a brother or sister may be in sin, that we are to lovingly bring that up with them and to try to help them if it's true. Now, I wonder, when's the last time you graciously brought up a sin issue with another Christian? Or perhaps you haven't. Maybe you haven't because you're worried about your friendship with them. Anxious that maybe that person won't like you anymore. Or maybe wondering what their reaction would be. And you end up caring more about what people think than what God thinks. And so the fear of man rules your heart in those moments. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes we have no problem bringing up sin to someone we know is going to take it well. Or maybe it's not a problem bringing up sin to someone who you know is going to take it well and that you'll kind of feel a sense of pride. Like, you know, I'm, I'm better than them. I want to make them feel bad. You know, in those moments, it's not that hard to point out sin. But oftentimes, we stop from sharing with those who may not respond well. Those who may hurt us back. Oftentimes, though, those are the ones that meet our, need our gentle, loving rebuke more than others. Friend, have you been withholding loving words of rebuke because of your fear of man? Well, this text reminds us that the glory of God is at stake. And so out of love for God and their brothers, these western tribes were quick to confront. Not only that, they were willing to pay any price to reclaim their lost brothers. Look down at verse 19 of the same chapter. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. Now they urge their brothers, brothers, take drastic action in this moment. Abandon your inheritance in the east. If this land is causing you to sin, if there's temptation there, if this altar has tempted you, run from it. Leave your inheritance and come 
be with us in the West. It was better in their eyes if these tribes abandoned everything and pursued true worship than to keep their land and engage in apostasy. Now it's interesting when you read that, that the Western tribes didn't just love by their talking. Do you notice that? They do something even greater. They offer their own land if it helps the Eastern tribes in their worship of the one true God. And let that sink in just for a moment. This is incredible, costly love. And the best kind of discipline and tough love is one that is willing to pay a personal price in one's attempt to reclaim those who are erring. That's what the Western tribes do. There's another great lesson for us as we read this, as we ponder this. Friends, are you willing to pay a price to help your friends, to help your family, to help fellow members of this congregation in their fight against sin? If you're a member of our church, our church covenant continues and says that we will rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, helping to carry each other's burdens. This is a tall task to carry each other's burdens, isn't it? But I wonder if you're anything like me, you'll help someone when it's convenient for you. See, I don't mind helping people if it's on the way for me. But to go out of our way is another story. As you consider this love of the Western tribes, does this love that they have for the Eastern tribes, does it make you feel uncomfortable? And giving up some of your home? I mean, in order to keep the eastern tribes from sin and to escape the judgment of God, they were willing to give up the inheritance that they had just received. And this was the inheritance long promised, long ago. They were waiting for it. They were excited about it. They hadn't even unpacked their bags yet. They hadn't even enjoyed the first fruits of God's gift to them. And they were saying, hey, friends, to the east, if this is going to keep you from sin, come. Take some of our land. Take some of our home. Come join us. If this protects you from sin, if this helps you pursue God, come. I'm willing to give up my land for you. See, friends, when we help someone and it doesn't hurt, it's not really a sacrifice, is it? No, friend, is there a limit to your love to those struggling with sin? When's the last time you sacrificed something that stretched you? See, maybe like the Western tribes, it's bringing someone into your house and housing them so they can fight sin or run from a place of great temptation. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. I don't know. Maybe for some of you, you being here in Dubai is crushing you and your family. Maybe it's crushing those that you love the most. Maybe you're successful. Maybe your job is going well. But perhaps your spouse or your kids are having a tough time. Or maybe you're separated from your family. Maybe you've left your family back home to provide for them. But you leaving them has meant they have struggled. They have strayed away from God. They have strayed away in sin back home. So today I ask you, maybe the costly love of God towards you means leaving this place and going back home for the sake of your family. Or maybe it means for some of you, it means changing your careers. Maybe changing your careers so that you can be more attentive to your children who are being led astray, who are struggling in sin. 
Maybe it means a lifestyle change. Maybe giving up certain hobbies, giving up certain things so you can be attentive to your kids or to other family members. I remember one day in uh, my theology training, one of our professors walked in. And I remember this image so perfectly because it had such a profound effect on my life that he walked in one day and sat down at the desk in the front of the class. And rather than jumping right into our lesson, I think it was on the book of Judges, he stopped and he just began weeping, confessing to us that they had just found out that his teenage son was addicted to drugs. He realized that he may need to resign from his time-consuming job and take a less demanding job so he could take care of his son. And what impressed me most was how in tears he told us that he was willing to do whatever it took to help his son battle the sin. So friends, I don't know what it is for you. I encourage you to check your life. Is there changes you need to make? Are there sacrifices you need to do? Is there costly love that you need to shower someone else to help them in their sin, to help them in their difficulty? Because friends, the greatest illustration for us is the costly love of Jesus himself, isn't it? Up in heaven, enjoying perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, he came down, lived on this earth, suffered and died. Why? To save us from our sins. Friend, living a Christ-like life means following in his footsteps. It means carrying your cross. It means a life suffering for the sake of God's glory and for the good of others. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to do for others who are struggling in their sin? Well, the Western tribes were willing to go to war. And thankfully, though, as we look back at the story, the Eastern tribes had a good answer for this accusation that the Western tribes have. In fact, they agree with the Western tribes that idolatry is terrible, that worship is to be undivided. But see, their answer is that they had done exactly the opposite of the accusation. The altar that the Eastern tribes created was a means of preventing infidelity. And they explained they hadn't built the altar to worship another god. And the entire paragraph shows they never intended to use it as an altar to sacrifice. Look at verses 26 and 27. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at a sanctuary with burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. No, it may have been an imposing altar, but it wasn't an opposing altar. No, they were actually celebrating and marking their continued service and worship of God. They were afraid that in a generation, perhaps the new generation of the Western tribes, would treat the Eastern descendants with disdain. Perhaps the River Jordan might become something akin to the Berlin Wall separating the two. No, it was a reminder to them and their kids of their unity, that like the Western group, the Eastern group were both the people of God. It was something like a stone of remembrance that we saw in Joshua chapter 4. No, both sets of tribes had gotten the idea that worship is to be undivided, that there is one God, one faith, one altar. But not only is worship to be undivided, there's a second thing we see in our passage, and it's that worship is to be historical. That's the second point. Worship is historical, undivided and historical. 
Now, there are times when it's not good to be historical. In fact, I remember my first pastor, he would always say to us in the congregation that if you're a husband or a wife and you're in conflict with one another, you never want to get either hysterical or historical. And by historical, he meant it's not a good idea to bring up your spouse's faithless deeds in the past. You know, to say things like, "Mm, you always do this. You never do that. Now, those words I can say from experience, not really helpful. Not really helpful at all. Or you begin to point out, remember when you did that and you begin to hold these things against your spouse in those moments of conflict? Well, this is not the historical that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about worship being a reminder of what God has faithfully done in past history. A philosopher once said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. See, but worshiping, worshiping historically is not naturally how we live, is it? You know, we often act on our feelings rather than upon what we know of God and his ways. So Joshua was challenging them to remember what God had done for them in battle. He wants them to marvel at God's faithfulness in the past. Which is ultimately, that's what we've been talking about for these seven weeks, hasn't it been? That God has been faithful in the past. I mean, look at part of Joshua's farewell speech down in chapter 24. So skip ahead to chapter 24. Let me read to you part of this farewell speech, verses 3 down through verse 8. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Sire to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there. And I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you out to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. Now, do you see the key word? In that passage I just read, it's the word I. Mac just said I is a bad word for corporate prayer, but when God's talking about what he has done, I, it's the best word because look there. He says, I took, I gave, I assigned, I afflicted, I sent, I did, I brought, I destroyed. The point is, as God is saying here, I did everything. All in the past tense, all celebrating God's work. In the past. It's quite a farewell speech, isn't it? But I wonder if you ask yourself, why would Joshua spend so much time in his final speech telling them what they already know? Well, God reminds them before he passes away that everything that has been done, everything that will come to pass, is all God's grace. 
That God saving Abraham was God's grace. That taking them out of the Exodus was God's grace. That the conquest of Canaan was all God's grace. All of it was God. This is the plain logic of faith. And and here we see the consistent biblical pattern. That Israel's confidence and assurance spring from remembering God's faithful words and deeds in the past. That their obedience was to be motivated by the grace of God showered them. And so Joshua rehearses the story of the king's grace. I mean, friends, would you be sitting here this morning with the people of God if it wasn't for God's grace? I mean, think of your life before Christ. Think of your life before you believed, before the Holy Spirit came to live within you. Think about your values. Think about your hopes. Think about your dreams. Think about your sin. And think about today. I mean, friend, it is nothing but the grace of God to transform you. I'd encourage you because it would be good for your soul if you took some time this afternoon, just in the silence of your own hearts, to consider the testimony of God's grace in your life. To consider your testimony, which is how God saved you. To think about your life before you came to Christ. To think about how God saved you and to think about your growth since he saved you. And furthermore, to consider your growth in grace. Consider what he's doing in your life today. Maybe even just take some time to write that down, to kind of itemize, to think about God's faithfulness to make you more and more like Christ over the years. It's like Joshua's document here. As he documents God's faithfulness to you over the years, you'll be encouraged by what he has done. John Newton, the former slave trader turned minister, once said at family prayers these famous words. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. And yet I can truly say I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now friends, it is all unexpected, unimaginable, unexplainable grace. No, Abraham rose out of that desolate pit and miry bog of paganism because God came to him. God chose him. David was broken and repented of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah because God's grace in his heart drew him to repentance. And fellow Christian, you were saved out of the depths of your sin. Because of God's grace in the death of Christ. Now Joshua reminds the people upon his death of, his, of God's faithfulness in the past. So they can be certain of God's faithfulness in the future. This is perhaps the theme of the entire book. It would be wise for you and I to be the chief historian of God's faithfulness in our lives. And in, in the lives of our family. To always be ready at a moment's notice, to recount God's grace in your life would come in handy in those moments of despair and darkness that we all go through. The worship should be undivided, but worship should also be historical. But there's a third thing and final thing we see in this passage of Scripture, and it is that worship is to be pure, undivided, historical, and pure. It's a particular form of obedience mentioned here. This obedience must take form of separation. Look now back at chapter 23, verses 6 and 7. So turn back to the second of Joshua's speeches and look what he says here to the people of God. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. 
And then down in verse 12, the consequences are listed if they don't obey this. Verse 12, but if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. What Joshua is saying here is having social mixers with the Canaanites will only draw the Israelites closer to pagan worship. And separation remains the form of obedience for God's new covenant people. And this may begin with the general demand to develop the Christian mind, but also embrace the specific acts and decisions, such as seeking only a Christian companion in marriage. See, the problem that Joshua is talking about in these verses isn't interracial marriage. That's not the issue at all. Now, the problem was rather a believer marrying an unbeliever. This danger was so great that it was strictly prohibited to the Israelites. It dramatically polluted the faith of the believer. And we see this on numerous occasions in Solomon's life and in others. Well, the same prohibition we also see in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul says to not be yoked with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Then we know that God's purpose in marriage is for two believers to get married in covenant with one another and with God. So Joshua makes this command, reminding them that the people of Canaan were idolatrous and exceedingly corrupt. And he warns them to separate because the first step with idolatrous is friendship. Whereas the next step perhaps is marriage. And then the final step is serving those false gods. Now what Joshua's not saying here and what we're not saying is that we shouldn't evangelize others or share our faith with those who don't know God. But there is this element of separating, for separating our lives in such a way that we're not infected by the wickedness around us. So Joshua warned that disobedience would be a gradual thing. It would sneak up on them when they least expect it. And Joshua was concerned to protect Israel from perhaps the most threatening disease that would plague them throughout all of history. And that is the problem of syncretism. Now, in one sense, as you read through the Old Testament, the history of Israel is one of syncretism. Now, what is syncretism? Well, syncretism involves the blending or mixing together of distinct elements from different sources. So Joshua's worry is that they would begin to not only just worship the true God and obey him, but they would kind of start bringing in some of these pagan practices slowly but surely until these elements just get mixed, until they forsake worshiping the true God altogether. And so Joshua gives the Israelites his famous charge in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Look ahead to almost the very end of the book in his farewell speech, verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now there's no doubt what Joshua's after here. The word serve appears seven times in this passage. And he's telling Israel they must decide whose slaves they will be. And then Joshua appears to do a strange thing. Did you notice that? 
Not many of us, I think, notice in this famous choose, you, choose who you'll serve this day command that Joshua is calling Israel to choose between two sets of pagan gods. Do you notice that? Well, back up a minute. Look at verse 14. Joshua first calls Israel to obey the true God. Of course, that's the right answer. Obey the God of Israel, the God who saved you, the God who is sovereign, the God who has given you this land. But if Israel will not serve the true God, they must at least choose some God. And so he presses Israel against the wall that they must come down somewhere. If not Yahweh, the historical God, then they must choose either the ancestral Mesopotamian gods or the contemporary Amorite gods that the Canaanites were worshiping. But you must choose. And as Matthew Henry has said, if not Yahweh, if not the God of Israel, then take your pick from these dung hill deities. Well, some may be disturbed at the way the evangelist Joshua is calling for decisions. I mean, is he really serious? Choose which pagan god you will serve? I mean, how could that really be a choice? Well, I think that's precisely Joshua's point. He says, serve Yahweh, serve God, but if you won't, choose which non-god you will serve. And you say, well, but that's ridiculous. Choosing between pagan gods is absurd. And Joshua says, that's my point. If you reject Yahweh, if you reject God, you're crazy because the only options left are non-gods. They make no sense at all. They're foolish. Joshua wants them to realize what sort of God they're dealing with. A holy, jealous, the true God of the universe. Now too frequently the God we think of, the God we think about is some variety of prepackaged joy, peace, and provision. And Joshua's telling us that He's a holy God who is to be obeyed. Except there's one small problem. It's that we can't obey perfectly. Look at the Israelites. They had just experienced God's faithfulness throughout the line of Canaan. We're here in chapter 24. We get this recapitulation of the covenant, this promise between God and the people. And the Israelites again promise to keep it. Again, the Israelites say, I can do it. We can do it. We can promise and we can fulfill it. But then Joshua says something that will foreshadow the rest of the Old Testament history in verse 19. He says, no, actually you can't keep this commandment. For God is holy. Look at verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. It's interesting, Joshua doesn't conclude his farewell speech with some fluffy statements, some warm and fluffy comments, does he? Well, this doesn't mean that God won't forgive sin. I mean, look down at verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. Well, the point here is that our persistent rebellion to serve foreign gods will lead to disaster. And it's indicative of one who's never placed their faith in God in the first place. The Bible's not, the Bible's clear that you can't lose your salvation. That once you're saved truly by the work of God, then you are persevered to the end. That a true believer will not forsake the Lord. And the point Joshua is trying to make in a shocking way is that we are to be holy and serve the Lord, but ultimately on our own, we can't do it. That we are doomed to failure. Now friend, if you're thinking about how wonderfully righteous you are compared to the person you're seated next to, then you haven't sensed your utter need of God's grace. No one can obey the law fully. If you have your Bibles, turn, turn over just a couple pages to the beginning of 
the book of Judges. Turn over to chapter 2 of Judges. I want to show you what happens right after the book of Joshua chronologically. This covenant was just made in chapter 24. Again, it was the recapitulation of it that promised that they will follow God. And look at chapter 2. As soon as this generation dies, they turn from God again. Verses 10 and following. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. Oh, friends, none of us are righteous, not even one. All of us are just as guilty as the Israelites. We all do evil in the eyes of the Lord. All of us are guilty of vile and heinous sin against the stainless perfection of the God who made us. This leads us into the same predicament as the Canaanites. We deserve to be expelled from this place, destined for destruction, except for an exception. See, when Joshua says you must choose, choose for yourself this day who you will serve, there is one who is alive today whom you can serve. One who has provided a way out of destruction. Now, while this text shows us that we can't be fully obedient, there's one who has come who was, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's through his death, and as Glenn said, through his resurrection, that he has conquered sin, that he has conquered death, that he has provided a way for our sins to be punished upon himself so that we can be made free. That instead of experiencing God's wrath for all eternity, the eternal Son of God came to us, God in the flesh, paying the penalty for us. God's word is clear that if we were to repent of our sin, to turn from the ways of the world and to cling to Christ, to repent and to believe in him to save us, then we become the children of God, adopted into the family of God, and we are no longer guilty. That in the moment that we believe, we now live in obedience, not to earn God's favor, but because we have received God's favor. Now friends, this is the only way to become a Christian. Because the Bible is clear that going to church makes you a Christian no more than going into a garage makes you a car. That doing good works can't make you a Christian because you can never be fully free from your bad works, your sin. That as James says, if you break the law even at one point, you are guilty of breaking all of it. That being born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian because Christianity doesn't come in the genes. It doesn't come to you at birth. It's a personal decision by God's grace to believe and love Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, friends, choose this day whom you will serve. Not next year. Not next month. Not next week, but this day. Friends, don't leave this room today without making a choice. You see, if it's not the living God of this world, as Joshua said, you will worship some other non-God. All of us worship something all the time. Might I suggest to you that it be the God who made you. That it be the God who rules over all the earth. That it be the God who can save you through the shed blood of Jesus. Because God has displayed his faithfulness to you in the past. 
And so place your faith in him today. Achan chose to disobey God. Rahab chose to worship the true and living God. Which will you choose? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray that our hearts would melt right now at the thought of your faithfulness in sending your son in the past to suffer and die at our expense. Father, to be humiliated so that we might have dignity, to suffer so that we might have peace, to be crucified so that we might be set free. Oh, Father, your love for us is so marvelous, so glorious. Your faithfulness is almost too much to bear. Father, would your salvation bring us never-ending joy here on earth and in heaven. Father, we pray for those who upon arrival this morning did not know you. Perhaps had been serving and worshiping these non-gods of this world. Father, we pray that today will be the day of salvation for all those in this room, who do not believe. Pray that today, God, in your grace, you would save them. Father, that you would draw them to repentance, that you would draw them to belief. Father, that they would leave this room worshiping the true God of the universe. That they would be placing their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. Father, we pray for salvation in this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.